the New Testament with me to the book of James chapter 4. We're going to focus our attention tonight on just a few verses, beginning at verse 13 and then reading uh, to the end of the chapter. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. This is God's holy word giving us infallible instruction for our lives. So let's listen carefully to these words as they're read and as they're preached. James writes and says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We're going to end our reading there. But please keep your Bibles open. A woman once mailed a Christmas letter, Christmas card, to her extended family, and the card read like this, Dear family, I'm sure this letter finds you well. Our household enjoyed great health this year, and we expect that to continue, what with all the vitamins we've been popping. The kids are doing well in school and excelling at sports. Jennifer plans to finish at the top of her class academically. And Robbie expects to make all state this year after a productive off-season. We're taking a two-week family vacation to Maui in June, and then Andy and I will get away for a while to celebrate our anniversary in July. All in all, it's going to be a great year, filled with much fun and excitement. Talk to you soon. Love, Denise. Now, if I asked you to identify the kind of person who would write a card, write a letter like this, you might say, well, it sounds like someone who's going about their life without the slightest regard for God's control over what happens to them. You might say, it sounds like someone who's very self-confident, somebody who's presumptuous, somebody who really never pauses to realize that their life is dependent upon the sovereign God. You might even say, Sounds like an atheist. Sounds like an unbeliever. And you'd be right. She does sound like an unbeliever. But what if I told you that this was a Christian woman who wrote this letter? You see, sadly, it is all too often the case that professing Christians live and act and sound like atheists. In this practical sense, that sometimes Christians live with a disregard for, a, an indifference toward God's sovereign control of their lives. And in this epistle, this letter that James writes to the church, he's writing to rebuke some people in the church. He's writing to admonish those who are confident in their future planning. They are boasting about tomorrow. They're boasting about where they will go, what they will do, and what they'll accomplish when they get there. And James writes to rebuke them. He calls them to reject such sinful boasting about the future. And he says, instead, you must cultivate a mind of, of dependence upon the Lord. 
And it's a mindset captured by the old Latin phrase, often included at the end of personal letters, the phrase Deo Valente, DV for short, hence my sermon title tonight. Deo Valente, a phrase translated God willing, God willing. The dawn of a new year, how are you approaching the future? With all sorts of self-confident planning and a, a presumptuous trust that everything will work out exactly as you scheduled it on your calendar or envisioned it in your mind? Or are you approaching the new year with a DV mindset, purposefully living each moment of your life conscious of the providential sovereignty of God who is worthy of your humble trust? Tonight, we're going to look at James's serious admonition. We're going to consider a godly mindset that we're to cultivate and a simple trust that we are to enjoy. Biblical scholars, as they read James' words here in verses 13 to 17, sometimes entertain the idea that James here wasn't writing to believers at all, but was instead writing to unbelievers because his tone here is so strong. It's such a strong admonishment, it's such a strong rebuke that we might wonder, is he really talking to Christians at all? And yet we go on and we read a few verses later that he is writing to believers who know the right thing to do, but they're acting as if they are not believers at all. Their attitude about the future more closely resembles the the, the perspective of their pagan neighbors who have no regard for God and His control over their lives. We're not sure exactly what's going on here. The text is sort of scant on details, but it appears that James is addressing some people in the church who belong to the fairly well-to-do merchant class. These are entrepreneurs, and they've made elaborate plans to go on a money-making business trip, and they're confident that their plans will pan out. They are confident in where they will go. They're confident they'll arrive safely. They're confident in what they will do. They're certain about how long they'll stay, and they are very confident about the outcome of their plans. They will make money. And James chastises them. He rebukes them for their arrogant presumptions and says that such boasting does not acknowledge their sovereign Lord, who alone determines where they will go, what they will do, and how they will fare when they get there. That's important to understand the nature of James's rebuke here. James is not saying that it's wrong to make profit off of an honest business. He's not an anti-capitalist. And James is not saying that it's wrong to be concerned about the future or that it's wrong to put dates on the calendar. On the contrary, Scripture praises those very often who prepare for the future, who store away for rainy days. You think of the the valiant woman of Proverbs 31. She's praised on the pages of Scripture because she has forethought. She makes plans for the future. She, She works hard to provide for her family making plans after high school and college. It's perfectly acceptable. Taking out life insurance, saving for retirement, putting money aside for your children's education or your daughter's wedding, those are wise moves. 
That's part of being wise stewards, good stewards of God's good gifts and time. And not at all what James is condemning here. What he's rebuking is any kind of future planning that arises from the mindset of human pride and arrogance and the presumption that we have any ability at all to determine the course of future events in our lives. And he makes that very clear in verse 16. He says, it's your boasting and your arrogance. That's what's evil. That's what's wicked. You're boasting about your future plans. And to prove his point that, that prideful future planning is sinful, he basically says, just look at yourselves for a moment. Pause for a second and consider the nature of your life. See the obvious reasons why such boasting is foolish and worldly. He says in verse 14, first, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You're not all-knowing. You're not omniscient. You can't see one millisecond into the future. How could you plan with such boasting, such confidence? He says, in addition, look at your life. Look at the nature of your life. Some of this was reflected upon in Psalm 90. James says, your life is a vanishing mist. It's a smoke. It's a vapor. Human life is immensely fragile and transitory. I heard about a man not long ago who was killed on the freeway. He was going down the freeway in the lane closest to the concrete median. And the car on the other side, going in the opposite direction, had a tire come off of the vehicle and it bounced over the concrete medium, smashed into his windshield, and killed him instantly. He never had a chance to swerve out of the way. He was here one moment and gone the next. That, James says, is in many senses, from our human perspective, the nature of our lives. Sudden illness, accidental death, even the return of Christ, the day and hour of which no one knows. His coming to judge the living and the dead, all of these kinds of things could cut our lives short just as quickly as the sun burns away the morning mist. Consider the fleeting substance of your life, James says, and realize that all boasting about tomorrow, all self-confident long-term planning is an act of worldliness and unbelief. Truly, James picks up on the wisdom of Proverbs 27, verse 1, which says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. James is very clear. Arrogant, presumptuous planning for the future is sinful. Why? Because it ignores the providence of God. It's to live like atheists, as if there were no sovereign God in charge of our lives. And James goes on and says, there's a more appropriate, there's, there's a more obedient way for Christians to live out their lives. Instead of boasting, instead of making presumptuous plans for the future, instead, all our future planning should conclude with this godly admission, this all-important qualifier, if the Lord wills. Deo valente. DV, then my plans will come about. 
if the Lord wills. It's a simple phrase, but it's packed with meaning. It reminds us that we are not in charge of our own destinies. We are completely dependent upon the sovereign God for all things. It's not some glib religious cliche. It's a mindset. It's a mindset. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a guiding principle of our lives. It's something we should be cultivating every single day if the Lord wills. It's nothing short of an all-encompassing worldview that shapes everything we think, everything we do, everything we desire as Christians. Well, what are we really saying when we confess if the Lord wills, Lord willing, D.V.? Well, many things, of course, but we're confessing and acknowledging at least two main things. First, we're confessing when we say, Lord willing, we're confessing that God is sovereignly in charge of my life, that He determines my steps according to the purpose of His perfect will. See, it's it's not just enough to, to confess or acknowledge that our lives are frail or that our lives are like a mist, they're transitory. There's no comfort in that. There's no comfort in recognizing that our lives are frail. In 1977, some of you may remember this, I don't, of course, there was a song that hit the airwaves called Dust in the Wind. It's still on the radio. I don't think it's ever come off since. Very popular. And the haunting refrain of that song is, all we are is dust in the wind. And I I like the song for other reasons, but I find it strange that unbelievers find that song so consoling. It's a song frequently sung at funerals. All we are is dust in the wind. There's really only a partial truth there. Yes, our lives are frail, but what we really need to reckon with is the reality that our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God. That's more significant. We need to acknowledge that that nothing happens in this world. Nothing occurs in our lives without the permission of God. And a brief scan of Scripture makes that abundantly clear. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, the writer says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. A few Proverbs later in Proverbs 20, something similar is, is stated. A man's steps are from the Lord. I'm struck by the words of David, King David, after he had finished the temple You might imagine him to to talk about the great works of his hands and finishing the temple of the Lord, but this is what he says in chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. The prophet Daniel in Daniel 4 through 5 declared something very similar. That all peoples are in the hand of God. He says, the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will. He is the God in whose hand is your breath, your very life. And whose are all your ways? 
In Acts 17, Paul declared something very similar to the pagans in Athens. He said, our God, the God of heaven and earth, is the God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. In Ephesians 1, he says, he is the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Scripture is very clear. God rules and determines all things that come to pass in the world and in our lives. There's an old Jewish proverb. I think it was popularized by Woody Allen. It goes something like this. If you want to make the Almighty God laugh, just tell Him about your plans. And there's some truth in the humor of that, isn't there? We may make plans, but God is the only one who has the right, who has the power to establish our steps according to the purpose of His will. That's what we're confessing when we say, if the Lord wills. But that's not all that we're confessing. We are also confessing that God's will is best for me. We're confessing that God's will is good for me. When we say, if the Lord wills, we're not kowtowing to a malevolent heavenly dictator whose sovereignty is fickle and uncaring. Not at all. No, when we submit our plans, when we submit our futures to our Creator, we're confessing that our God is good and does all things well on behalf of His people. We're confessing that our Heavenly Father loves us so much that He turns all things to our salvation, all things. He may see fit to grant us good health in the new year, or He may take away our lives without a moment's notice. He may bless us with talents and wealth, or He may call us to live barely within our means and with a lack of resources. He may thwart our plans. He may say no to our good intentions. And He will certainly humble us if we don't have a proper view of ourselves and our sinfulness. But when we say, if the Lord wills, what we are saying is that all of this is good. All of this is good and perfect because it's God's will coming to fruition in our lives. Our times are in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Our days are numbered by Him, and that is good for us. And the goal of our lives should be learning to be immensely satisfied with God's will for our lives, learning to be submissive to His will. Much could be said about submitting to God's will. But when it comes to future planning, it means knowing and believing God's revealed will in the Bible. There are aspects of God's secret will which we will never have access to. We mustn't worry about those things. But our plans for the future should always conform as much as we can determine to God's revealed will in the Scriptures. And that means that when we say, Lord willing, if the Lord wills, we need to have a pretty good sense of what the Lord truly wills, of what the Lord truly desires as He's revealed that in His Word. 
saying Lord willing or if the Lord wills is not some magical formula that, that automatically sanctifies every decision that we make, especially if it's an unbiblical decision. We don't have the right to say, Lord willing, my family is going to thrive spiritually this year if we've made no sacrifice whatsoever to catechize them, to bring them to worship consistently or educate them through the lens of Scripture. We don't get to claim that our decision to move to another state is God's will if we're moving our family to a place where there is no biblical church or Christian school or godly environment to become a part of. No, we must be responsible Christians. When we take DV upon our lips, we must be responsible. We must take careful thought about what God's will actually is as it's been revealed in His Word. For James says here in verse 17, if we know what we ought to do and don't do it, that too is sin. Yes, if the, Lord's, if the Lord wills is far more than a Christian slogan. It's not just a cliche. It's a mentality. It's a way of life. It's a worldview that commits every act, every decision, every desire to the good and perfect will of our Heavenly Father. But finally, Lord willing is a confession of humble trust that brings much blessing and comfort into the Christian's life. I think one of the most beautiful statements about the believer's comfort in knowing God as their heavenly Father is found in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9, question and answer 26. I'd like you to turn in your Trinity Psalter hymnals to the back and, and follow along as I read this because it's so immensely relevant and beautiful as we start a new year together. It's found on page 876. 876 in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnals. Lord's Day 9, of course, asks this all-important question, what do we believe when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? We confess that together tonight in the Apostles' Creed. And here's the wonderful answer that grounds our comfort, anchors our assurance as Christians that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, that's God's sovereignty, and who still upholds and rules them by His eternal counsel and providence. That God is my God and Father for the sake of Christ His Son. And what can be our only response to such a God? I trust God so much that I do not doubt He will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity He sends upon me in this veil of tears. And then this beautiful confession to conclude. He's able to do all this because He is Almighty God. He desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. Catechism makes clear that our future hopes and dreams and plans are subject to the overarching will of God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. But we know our sovereign God 
as our Heavenly Father. Because He is our Father for the sake of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you belong to the Lord Jesus tonight, if you have been united to Him by faith, then that means that Jesus stands before the Father on your behalf. And He pleads for you on account of His holiness. And because of that, God is pleased with you. And He delights to meet all of your needs for the sake of His beloved Son. Anyone who knows the love and the care of this Father and His Son has no need to fear about the future. When we are safe under the loving care, the loving arms, the loving wings of our Heavenly Father, we can trust His providence. We can joyfully submit to Him in whatever He sends us in our lives. Because in all things, all things, God works according to His purposes for the good of those who love Him. And so I ask you tonight, is your life characterized by such humble trust and peace and assurance? Is that what characterizes your life? Because the signs are clear. The signs are evident of that trust. Those who know this truth of a loving Heavenly Father and a Son who cares for our needs perfectly, those who know that truth have anchored their souls in God and His sovereign goodness. Those who know this truth don't boast in worldly plans and accomplishments. Those who know this truth patiently and quietly wait upon the Lord in times of trouble. Those who know this truth do not get easily upset when their timelines don't pan out. Those who know this truth don't become quickly angry or speak rashly when things don't go as planned. In this frantic world, it is truly freeing to give up our own will and simply and humbly trust in God, asking that His will be done in our lives. It's truly liberating to believe that God is completely good and His will can only be completely good for us. And learning to seek and to follow God's will brings true happiness and true contentment because it's trust in a God whose good will for us can never, ever be defeated. And so, don't put so much trust in your own will, but learn to delight in God's will. Learn to find God's will infinitely satisfying. Commit yourself to obeying God's revealed will in the, in the Bible. And then lean on God's character and promises to guide you through the experience of His secret will, which may at times be difficult to face. Cast your cares upon your heavenly Father, who is your God and Father for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because of God's Son, you have a future of perfect fellowship with Him 
And as you follow him now in faith, he will never lead you astray. He will never fail to provide for any one of your needs. Trust him. Love him. Obey him. And know the assurance of his fatherly care in this new year. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for this proper admonition at the beginning of a new year. Oh Lord, we enter this new year with much on the horizon, as far as we can tell. We have hopes, we have dreams, we have projects and things that we anticipate doing and experiencing. And Lord, those are fine as far as they go. Future planning is, is wise and good. But, O oh Lord, may we not fall into a ungodly, unbelieving mentality of making plans without confessing if the Lord wills. If the Lord is pleased with this plan, if it's good for me, then let it be. Lord, may this new year be a year once again of recommitting ourselves to you and to your perfect will for us, committing ourselves to your revealed will in Scripture. May it be a new year of, of casting our cares upon you and submitting to your sovereign providence in our lives. May it be a year of learning to delight, to, to find infinite delight in your good and perfect plan for us. Oh Lord, take away our doubt. Remove our fear. Remove our, our anger and our impatience. Replace them with a, a quiet, humble trust and dependence upon you. Lord, you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. You've given us your very Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take away the condemnation of our sin. How will you not with him give us all things that we need? Lord willing, bring us back here again next Sunday to send it to your glorious word, O Lord. In the meantime, may we commit ourselves to your service with a humble, quiet trust. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Trinity Psalter hymnals to number 255. Number 255. Song that recounts God's providence, his daily care over our lives. We're going to sing all four of or all three rather of these stanzas, number 255, day by day, and with each passing moment. Let's stand together to sing this song.
your friends in the Lord, go now into this new year with this parting blessing of our God. May God bless you and keep you, and may you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Amen. Thank you.